0: We have a great show planned for you this week. Fresh from his visit to Mickey's Magical Kingdom, Aaron reviews the Walt Disney Company symbol DIS on the New York Stock Exchange after the company's shares touched nine-year lows this past week. Does Disney now offer good value or are would-be investors catching a falling knife near term? Aaron gives you his take. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, I answer a question on premium brands holding corporations symbol PBH on the TSX a leading producer, marketer, and distributor of branded specialty food products. The listener notes that the stock, which pays a 3% dividend, had a strong move to start this year, up 24%. And he wants to know if we recommend it in its current range. Backed by popular demand, Brennan reviews and revisits graphene manufacturing group symbol GMG on the TSX Venture. It's an Australian-based company involved in the production of graphene used primarily in paints, coolants, and lubricants targeted to improve energy efficiency and additionally in next-generation battery technology. Brennan reviewed the stock in early 2023 and viewed it as overhyped, and the price did not justify, was not justified by the underlying fundamentals. It has since dropped 40%, and a listener asks us our take after the company's drop. Last but certainly not least, Brett takes a look at the ever topical NVIDIA Corporation symbol NVDA on the NASDAQ, a pioneer of GPU-based accel- or accelerated computing. The company released its fiscal Q2 2024 fiscal results mid-last week, which beat expectations. Brett lets you know if this high flyer could continue to, have to fly higher or should it have its wings clipped. Let's get to the show. We welcome my co host, Mr. Aaron Dunn and always the killer bees, Brennan and Brett. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Good week. Good. Good you. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I was actually just telling the guys
1: that I ended up watching pulp fiction. Cause I know you guys are always, you know, it's making fun like me. Wow. Yeah, it's a bit yeah, of an inside so joke for week, anybody watching, but Brennan doesn't watch I'm a not lot a movie of movies. Guy. So, you know, yeah. when you yeah. reference something from pop a, culture a iconic stuff. movie, you know, oh. Brennan is <laughs> typically
0: that's good. Left yeah. confused. A Royale with cheese. He knows what that is now, right? You, but you're, you know uh, yeah, the Royale with that. cheese. No, Pulp Fiction, <laughs> that was the classic. That was yeah. a good year for movies, I think. Uh, like Pulp Fiction was up, uh, like Best Picture against Forrest Gump. And uh, there was like a couple didn't other movies. That was, come that out was Travolta's side. comeback
1: was a, film too, wasn't it?
0: Without a doubt. He was in yeah. obscurity. Like he, was out, he was out yeah.
1: doing nothing mm-hmm. for a while. And I think it was Pulp Fiction that was his.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, That's it's, it's good. We're, we're proud of you, Brennan. Keep it up. So, <laughs> yeah, when we go into these meetings and when to work, someone your references way through the something, entire
1: Marvel superheroes,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, movies. Movies. you got 20, <laughs> gonna 20 take movies while, to watch. But, uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a good weekend. There's lots of smoke around here, though, a little haze coming through. But uh, mm-hmm. I think we're getting through it. I think uh, Ron and I actually NBC. saw each
1: other in person. which yeah. was.
0: Less painful than usual. It was yeah. good. It was your, your daughter's was sixth lots birthday. Of other
1: people around. Yeah, my b- daughter's birthday. <laughs> Ron's daughter's similar age. So yeah. we we stood each other's presence for mm-hmm. three, four
0: hours. We actually s- s- sat next to each other for a lot of it. So it was pretty good. I don't I, We did pretty good. We just didn't talk about work. There's a lot of kids stuff to talk about, which is good, right? And Disneyland and my trip. So it was good. Yeah. 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 Uh, it
1: kind of was work since I'm going to be covering Disneyland on the podcast. Today, it's true; so. we basically worked
0: the whole mm-hmm. time at the at the birthday. So, speak. Uh, I'm I'm going to speak quickly at the start, just topically on uh, property sector woes. Uh, the U.S. housing affordability uh, is really sitting at four decade lows. I saw an article on this. I'm going to quote from it. According to Freddie Mac, the average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage jumped last week to seven point zero nine percent. That's the highest in over 21 years. That means essentially a would-be home buyer uh, can afford a lot less home. Uh, Three years ago, $25,000 monthly mortgage combined with a 20% down payment could get you about a $758,000 home. Today, the same monthly payment, 20% down are only good enough to get you a $443,000 home. Now, with yields on the 10-year Treasury, which is really closely correlated to mortgage rates, kind of hell-bent on rising affordability is getting uh, worse, and it's risk of getting even worse. Uh, the only thing that really can correct this right now, I mean, well, one of the main things that could correct it would be uh, just lower housing prices. And uh, we, interestingly, and I'll, I'll add this on to the end of that article, it wasn't in this article, but... Uh, kind of a Canadian centric point here. The housing market has been a bit of a tale of two cities. If you look at Toronto versus uh, Alberta, Calgary, Um, Toronto is kind of a tale of woe in from June to July home sales, existing home sales were down 8.8%, almost 9%. So um, then there's Calgary where the market was described as hot sales over that same period were up 11% year over year. So, And that's mostly, they're saying anecdotally, but I I think the evidence is there. It's mostly out-of-province buyers coming in to, say, the Calgary market uh, because they can't afford uh, the Toronto or Vancouver market. So, you know, kind of a tale of two markets going on in Canada right now. But, uh, you know, the housing affordability is similar, within, obviously, within the Canadian market. And there's just so many people that just can't afford to even look at a home there and moving out of perhaps Toronto or Ontario areas uh, and uh, moving into Alberta where it's been more affordable. So you see a spike there, maybe near term, but uh, you're certainly seeing again, a tale of two cities there.
1: So. Yeah. so I have a question for Brett here actually, cause he's a young man in, the, uh, in, in Calgary. Um, I've heard that because there's such high office vacancy in Calgary, uh, that a lot of the offices are being reconfigured into residential units, and that this is causing kind of like a coolization, or it's it's making it's it's making the downtown core of Calgary cool and trendy. I like that now. word, That's coolization. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're We're like, alone. what did I just say, right? I I realize that could be, you know, construed in many different ways. So I would say actually making it because Calgary has always had a reputation of being, you know, the downtown is really only the business Mm -hmm. district. And after the offices close, there's not much going on there that, you know, the trendy places to go are in various neighborhoods around Calgary. Um, Yeah. Well, we would go into Calgary. Changing now. So what's, is that what's
2: happening? I would say they're really attempting to, whether it's actually happening is, uh, I think still early more, days. it's still pretty early days. I yeah. I don't know how much has been actually shifted from office to residential at this point. I know there's always been for the last well, couple of years, ever since though, work from home and remote models have been taking place. There's been a push to that. And there has been a couple like districts, areas downtown, which have switched more to residential. But as a whole, has it been coolized, as Aaron would say? <laughs> I don't know if we're quite at that point where it's that vibrant youth, uh downtown, I don't think we're at that point, like Vancouver, or Toronto, where you actually have that nightlife, we're not there, we're still business oriented. Yeah, without. I mean, that is one I'm thing. I'm sure that,
1: there's yeah. a better word that could be used to describe it. Maybe <laughs> I if thought you it was perfect. somebody who actually is cool. <laughs> <You know, laughs> I me what the word is. Well, brother.
0: we we would always say that though, like coming into Calgary, like we do a conference there, like 10, 15, 20, you know, 20 years ago, honestly, we do. And, you know, as opposed to like, You'd end the conference in Vancouver or a city like Toronto, and you know everybody would start filtering downtown, and there was like this alive, uh, you know, vibe. The kids say, "Brennan, you say (laughs) these days downtown, right?" And and in Calgary was so different. I mean, beautiful city. I I like Calgary; like it's a great city. But you know, it would like shut down, and we'd be there, and it was just like, "What just happened?" Everybody just left, right? Like, and it it was just a totally different, uh, a totally different vibe brennan uh in in the city and i guess they're trying like aaron said to bring people downtown and, and maybe it'll be successful but it's gonna it's going to take a while because i, I It'd just be
1: interesting i mean we need urban sprawl if, all if around there are there. vacancies mm-hmm. in the live. office space and there's there's a yeah. shortage of residential units just as a general general shortage across the country yeah uh, it, it
0: only makes sense to uh to reconfigure and and so much cheaper to live downtown Calgary than downtown Vancouver or Toronto, right? So Well, maybe I know that will I personally happen. know of people several like people that moved yeah.
1: from Vancouver to Calgary <laughs> specifically for the reason that they wanted to buy a house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They they, you know, um, you know, one of my old friends was a chef that I can remember. He was working in Vancouver, he was doing pretty well, but there's no way he could buy a house. He moved to Calgary, basically same job, probably more money. Lower cost of living, and he he yeah. was able to buy homes. So makes
3: a lot yeah, of sense. We're we're One now point.
0: sponsored by the city of Calgary. Yeah, <laughs> mm. yeah, I guess their check so. is in the mail. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. Um, One thing I was listening to Dave Ramsey's podcast uh, on the weekend and he actually ended up getting mad at somebody who was saying that he wanted to wait for housing prices to potentially come down because the affordability is so low. And Dave got mad at this individual and was basically saying the best time to buy a house is tomorrow, you know, and he claims, you know, housing prices have only went up except for, you know, after the period after 2008, the financial crash, but. I just was like a little taken back. I still think that, you know, what's wrong with continuing to save um, for, you know, a larger down payment and, you know, being patient with the market, like affordability is like you just said at an all or how, yeah. how long of a low is it? You know, like, I just don't see how that doesn't 21 years some yeah.
1: degree. Maybe it doesn't. Here's, but here's my thought. I can understand what Dave Ramsey is saying mm-hmm. in terms of if you're trying to time housing prices. Right. Because a lot of people, when rates were coming up, would have said, you know, maybe they could have locked in at, you know, 2.5 percent. And they're like, oh, no, rates are coming up. So like property prices are going to come down and there's my opportunity. Uh, Obviously, that didn't happen. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that like it also does come down to affordability, not the national affordability number as much as just the affordability of the individual buying a house. Right. I mean, if you're going to stretch yourself so thin that it's you're going to ruin your life with stress and do nothing but work and still not be able to make your payment if rates go up another, you know, 100 basis points, then maybe it's not the time. But it's also not the time to quit. Then as you said, Brennan, you need to just continue to save and, you know, yep. maybe invest yeah. and and do do what you need to do when the opportunity presents itself. If, however, you're in a situation where you can't afford to do it, um then now probably is the best time because you know you don't know that property prices are going to come down and totally. trying to time the housing market is like time to t- trying to time the stock market i mean you might be right you might be wrong it's just things don't necessarily happen in that logical progression like you think mm-hmm. they are going to and you know one thing that i've always said is that when you're looking at time in the housing market if you are if you are somebody who is looking at it as not an investment but as a place to live for yourself and your family there are two risks that you you need to consider. One is the risk that you could be, if you continue to try and time it and you're wrong, that you could be permanently priced out. The other is the risk that you make the move and prices pull back, um, but you're still solvent, but you're still you're down on paper a certain amount, right? So what is the greater risk to you? That you could take a short-term loss on something that is really not considered an investment, it's considered a home, or that you're permanently priced out of the market. Um, mm-hmm. But then again, there's also the third risk is that you can stretch yourself way too thin to try and buy at, at a very high price and then put yourself in a bad position where, you know, not only are you out of a house, you're out of your nest egg as well. So,
3: yeah. And like, that's one principle that like he does talk about lots, you know, and I think that we would all agree with it where you don't want to drown in your mortgage, you know, have it as about 25% of, you know, your take home. Uh, after tax income, you know, is what a mortgage payment should be to try to, you know, st- start small and slowly, you know, get a starter home, you know, to start with rather than
0: just all of a sudden taking on a huge home. Um, yeah, you know, I would I say he, he he lives in a soundbite world too. So he has that big comment about the it's time to buy is now he's talking to a mass audience. And then on the flip side, he says, you know, you only need to spend this much of your income on you. Uh, you know on but Dave housing. Ramsey so, also
1: isn't living in Vancouver, right? Yeah, like I don't know does. where he lives. So he I mean you need to look at the market workforce. you're in. Housing prices
0: relative to incomes yeah, are completely yeah, different. Right? So, so it's and I don't he, think has he has his big, big sound, sound bites. Point, but, yeah. Look at the market that you're in and see if it makes sense for you within that market right now. And yeah. yeah I mean it, it it has to be more nuanced. Everything is just one sound bite you're getting from a guy like that. And uh and I and I we can cut out the part where you said you listen to his podcast if you want. So <laughs> just just,
3: just sometimes, and just again, kidding. it is more just pieces. And yeah, if I went like you were trend. just saying, if I went with the twenty five percent of my you know uh, uh, yeah. monthly pay, I you know I'd be in a rough rough area of Saskatoon, and you know Saskatoon's no Calgary or Vancouver or Toronto. Yeah. So, is it
0: anyways, really? Is, is it really rough? Uh, you know,
3: it's pretty rough. But you're <laughs> you you're a so. tough it's guy. not as bad you as, as Prince Albert though. It's not as bad as Prince Albert. I'll tell you that much.
0: Oh, now, now you, you've lost. Now our everybody, Prince Albert, Albert. The demographic has just yeah. gone out the window. There, how it's can you say be that? Against Brennan for. <sighs> I guess so. we'll you know, they all have all right. Production. Okay, you you want to get to uh, Walt Disney, the Magical Kingdom?
1: Yeah, because I yeah. was just there, um, mm-hmm. and I could have actually uh, covered. We can see Disney the ears on everything. your
0: head right now. They look great. All right, you know that that Disney. would have been a nice yes. uh,
1: that would have been a nice addition to this, but no, I'm not. I'm not going to have any of the. Ears. Oh, trust me, they'll um, be
0: there in the real cut. <laughs> right, right. Okay, <laughs> you're so, like shut. Yeah, up.
1: L- <laughs> let's uh, let's take a look here at uh at Disney, um, iconic company, obviously. So, a couple of the quick stats. Uh, Walt Disney Company is the official name. Symbol is D I S. Uh, trades at about $84 per share and it's a $153 billion market cap. So first thing I, I really want to note about Disney. Uh, well, the first thing I'll note about actually just being a recent visitor to the Disney parks is that they have a, a fantastic ability to separate people from their money. And I can speak to that firsthand. Um, and people are doing that with a smile on their face. So you really have to respect a company that has an iconic brand that everybody is aware of. Um, that is able to do such a fantastic job of um, making people go broke and, and, and happy to do it. Um, but aside from that, when we're just looking at the company from an investment perspective, from a financial analysis perspective, first thing is I like to break a company down and figure out you know where what do they do in all segments of their business and how do they make money? And one thing I will, I will say about Disney here is that it is a very complex company. So I, I broke it down into a, into a segmented um, tree just to kind of like show a few of the segments that exist in Disney. I could actually break it down way further than what I did. But if you take the overall company, Walt Disney, uh, that you could break that down into two large segments. Uh, the two main segments are Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution. So this is 63% of revenue for the first nine months of the year. And then the other... Key segment is Disney parks, experiences and products, which is 37% of revenue. So looking at that first segment, Disney media and entertainment, that further gets broken down into three other segments, which include linear networks. This is more of their cable business, their cable investments. Uh, There's direct to consumer. So this is their their streaming services. So Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, Hulu, and then there's content sales and licensing. Uh, and then when we go back to the other key segment, Disney Parks, experiences, and products, uh, that is further separated down into parks and experiences and consumer products. And I could keep segmenting these as well. Um, you, it's it's really like a rabbit hole. It's it's quite a complicated business and very diversified in terms of the the different things that they do. Um, looking at the the share price performance, as much as I respect their ability to uh, come up with ways to separate people from their money. Um, share price performance has not been great. Uh, looking over the last year, it's it's come down from a uh, uh, hundred and twelve dollars to about eighty four dollars per share. Now, when we look at a long term chart on Disney, it's the stock is actually trading right now at a nine year low. It hit a peak uh, in around twenty twenty one, March of twenty twenty one, at about one hundred and eighty five dollars, and now at eighty four dollars, it's basically seen almost nothing but a dive from that from that peak. So. Uh, what's happening here? It's at a nine-year low. Does that mean that it offers tremendous value? We got to get in right now. Um, what is causing this massive share price volatility? So, there's a lot of speculation and opinions out there um, in, in in the market. Some people think that because there's some political baggage with Disney, uh, if you follow, there's there's an ongoing um, battle war, so to speak, between. Uh, Disney and the um, governor's office, DeSantis' office in Florida, they're trading back and forth. Um, You know, some people think it's gone too woke, and that's why the the share price is not done well. Uh, But there's a few different things here. So I'm going to say that I, I don't think that the political issues really have much to do with this. I think that a lot of it really just boils down to the company fundamentals and then as well, A few other things that drove the share price to a range in 2021 that it never really should have achieved in the first place so when we look at the company's all-time high of about 185 dollars we have to keep in mind that this was during the peak of the pandemic craze so there were some absolutely wild valuations at that point in time and i think that the main thing that was driving disney's stock price at the time well there was actually two things one we were opening up from the pandemic which meant the parks were opening back up the cruise lines were opening back up so people were expecting you know obviously a lot of financial improvement there um but then there was also disney plus as well so disney's streaming service and how it was competing with uh, with netflix um streaming was a huge tension on the streaming company business during the pandemic i mean it still is obviously but during the pandemic there's a lot of companies and if you look at netflix's stock price um, it really actually demonstrated the same, uh, the same behavior as, as Disney's uh, right around that time, March of 2021. it had hit uh, an, an absolutely insane high. And then it subsequently just basically fell off. Now, it fell much lower on a percentage basis than Disney um, and has since recovered different businesses. But I think that a lot of what people were looking at at the time was Disney Plus um, and how it was gaining market share relative to, to Netflix. And this was really adding to the valuation. Since that period of time, that pandemic craze, valuations across the market, in some cases, while still high, have really returned to more reasonable levels. And I think that a lot of what we've seen in terms of the share price decline from Disney ha- is, is, is more related to that. It never really should have gotten up to that price. There is nothing justifying a price, in my opinion, of uh, 185 per share. But let's take a look at the recent financial results from the company uh, for the quarter. Their fiscal Q3 revenues were up 4%. Operating income was about flat and adjusted EPS was down 6%. For the nine-month period, revenues were up 8%. Uh, operating income down 6% and adjusted EPS was down 9%. So really, you know, we're not seeing anything very spectacular in the financial performance from Disney right now. Uh, You know, there's some areas of the business that are performing better than others. When we go look back at the Disney Plus business, I mean, I'm a Disney Plus subscriber. So that's another way they're able to separate me from my money. I think it's a very good service. I 100% have plans to continue it. Um, But it is not a profitable part of the business. Um, It was expected um, to lose money for about five years. And I think now we're getting at a point where over the next one to two years, they're focused on generating profitability from Disney+. So that could be a major driver, a positive driver for the company in the future, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. So let's wait to see signs that it's actually going to happen before we get too excited. Uh, we'll take a look here at the company's balance sheet. They, they have about $36 billion in net debt. Um, so relative to their equity, that's a pretty good debt to equity ratio. Relative to their EBITDA, uh, net debt to EBITDA of 3.6 times. For a company like Disney, it's a very capital intensive business. They have cruise lines, they have the parks, um, they have uh, um, studios, filming studios. It's not what I would consider to be um, an unacceptably high leverage ratio by any means, but it's certainly not low. I mean, I would not want to see it much higher than what it is. So I would at the very least say that Disney is a fully leveraged company at this point in time. In terms of what analysts are expecting uh, going forward from the company. So for the current year, analysts are expecting a very moderate amount of growth. The consensus estimate is about 372 in earnings per share. And that would put the valuation at about 23 times earnings. So certainly given you know the share price performance or the financial performance, rather, that we've seen, the balance sheet, um, 23 times is not... Uh, not what I would consider necessarily incredibly overvalued, but it's also not what I would consider necessarily very attractive. Now, analysts are expecting big growth in earnings per share in 2024. The consensus is 492. This would drop the price to earnings ratio down to about 17 times. So much more attractive valuation. And then there's that expected growth in 2024. But I would just say, you know, let's wait and see. I think that analysts have made, if if memory serves, some uh assessments of disney that have not come true um expectations have been pushed forward so rather than just look at that 2024 figure um i would you know and 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 assume that it's actually going to be achieved i would look at it with some skepticism at this point in time if they are able to achieve that and most other factors with the market are, you know, reasonably healthy, then I think that the company is set up for good share price appreciation. Um, but I would just, I would also be very hesitant to just accept it. Um, you know, one thing that I would definitely say with Disney is if you look at the, the trailing, um, earnings per share. So I'm just going to look at this from a, a gap basis, not adjusted earnings, but just gap earnings per share. There's not really been a, uh, certainly a consistent, Uptrend in earnings over time, and in fact, earnings really peaked in the pre-pandemic era, and they have not fully recovered since. Now, again, these are not adjusted earnings. If we were to look at adjusted earnings, you know, it's probably about three, four dollars in twenty twenty-three. Um, so certainly, the the picture looks better, but we're not getting a you know a consistent growth and profitability and profitability per share, which is what we we really like to see from a company. Um, so certainly, there is some. Good reasons to understand why the stock right now would be trading in a multi-year low. And just to sum this up, I I, I really like Disney. I like it as a um, I like it as a, as a as a company. Um, being a customer as a stock, I think that it does have some potential. Being an iconic brand, that it does have sticky revenue. The valuation is okay, um, and there should be a good long-term growth opportunity, which includes the potential for profit additions from Disney Plus. But the earnings performance really has been lackluster. The balance sheet leverage is it's okay, but it's 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 fully levered company. It's not low leverage. And as well, I mean, this is a uh, this is a high ticket consumer cyclical company. So it is by no means insulated from a recession Um, long term. I think that this branding, the iconic brand is going to be a great asset, continue to be a great asset that produces substantial cash flow. Um, But if we do enter into recession, the, the company can experience some challenges. So, I don't see a reason that I would recommend this as a stock investment in the near term. What I'd be looking for is a clear improvement in profitability. And I do think that there is a long term investment potentially into the brand. Um, so, if people were interested in Disney and they wanted to take a very small position at this point in time, I wouldn't argue with them. But it also wouldn't surprise me if, if we saw more downside on the stock. And I'm certainly just not seeing a clear investment thesis on why somebody would want to rush into the stock right now or why it, it offers fantastic value. So we continue to be on the sidelines with Disney. Um, and we'll just see what happens over the next couple of quarters.
0: Yeah. It's interesting with Disney too, part of them now it is a different environment now, but if you look at their box office releases, the movies they've released um, over this year, I certainly uh, di- haven't done as well as what you've seen historically. Like if you look at um Releases this year: Guardians of the Galaxy, The Little Mermaid, Ant-Man and Wasp, Indiana Jones. Um, just for comparison purposes, if you look at like their highest uh, grossing movie this year, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three is about 844 million worldwide. Uh, sounds like a big number, but if you go back to 2019, Avengers Endgame did 2.78 billion. Star Wars Force Awakens did 2 billion, like Affini- Avengers Infinity War did 2 billion. So it, uh, like really on the list right now, it's 35, number 35 of the movies they've released. So you're seeing uh, you're not seeing comparable numbers at the box office for some of these movies. You're not they're not hitting it out of the park. So you're not seeing some of the windfall profits you can get from those movies if they really hit. Now it is a different scenario now. Uh, back in 2019 they didn't really have Disney plus. So you you know people are now instead of going out to the and watching it uh, at you know, at the box office or watching it at your theater, you can grab the movie a couple months later, a month later, or you can even wait and get it streaming several months later as part of your package. So I am sure some of the audience is just saying, let's take a pause. We'll watch the movie in three months, you know, and and you're not watching it at the movie theater. But still, you know, when you look at those numbers, you can see it is a significant decline. They haven't hit it out of the park with any uh, movies in terms of box office receipts over the past several years. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly and- not in 2023.
3: Another interesting thing that recently they did, or Disney's ESPN ended up striking a deal with uh, Penn Entertainment, I believe, um, where they're actually planning on launching a sports betting or jointly launching a sports betting business together. And from my understanding, so under the terms, Penn will pay ESPN about $1.5 billion in cash and offer about $500 million worth of warrants to purchase its shares, blah, 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 blah. Either way, it's, it's interesting just to see, um, you know, the company is partnering with Penn to uh, essentially, um, you know, launch a a sports betting app, which is becoming sports, sports
0: and gaming are just like, yeah, interlinked now. Like it's become, yeah, um, yeah, it's crazy Um, how it's become, you know,
3: and of course that was so topical because Penn ended up, you know, cutting its ties with Barstool Sports um, and basically just giving the business back to um, Dave Portnoy, who I'm sure many of our listeners have heard about. Um, and, you know, decided to go with ESPN, which, you know, is probably the better route. Um, yeah, well, it it's certainly
0: a bigger brand, um, more sport and a different audience is watching all across ESPN yeah. than is watching just uh, uh, Portnoy's Boys. On, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Port exactly. Portnoy's Boys. Port on Boys. Exactly. Yeah. Anyways, interesting for sure. And those, those like sports and batting is just inter. Twined right now I, I know my dad every time he watches sports he curses it down what is this gambling every time i have to oh. see but like there's so many people that you know it adds juice to the game that's you know i want my friends to- man it's it's yeah. crazy it's lunatics like, right? it, it
3: drives me nuts <laughs> it's like if you spent any bit of time building a portfolio you know
0: rather than speculating on sports fantasy leagues and anyways gambling, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's true. All right, let's move on. Premium Brands Holdings Corporation, PBH uh, on the TSX, uh, trades around $104.35, $4.65 billion market cap. What does the company do? They're focused on acquiring and building value-added food businesses and brands that benefit from being part of the their ecosystem, essentially. The platforms and brands are active in the Canadian and U.S. retail and club for food services channels. Let's look at the company's second quarter results. Record revenues in the quarter, but just up 7.3% to $1.63 billion compared to the second quarter of 2022. Uh, record second quarter EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, was up 16.5% to $152.4 million. Um, but adjusted uh, and adjusted EBITDA, the margin was up to about nine point three percent from eight point six percent in the second quarter of the previous year. Second quarter adjusted EPS, however, was down eight percent to a dollar twenty-seven in the period. Want to look at valuations? Trailing EV to EBITDA is in the range of fifteen point eight nine based on its current year's expected adjusted EBITDA. The company trades with a forward-looking EV to EBITDA in the range of twelve. Premium brands has significant leverage with net debt of approximately two billion. To put this in perspective, the market cap, like we said, four point six billion, and its estimated adjusted EBITDA for the current year is just under six hundred million. So, on a trailing basis, net debt to EBITDA is in the range of five point six or four point five five on a forward-looking basis. Um, both are high. In terms of leverage ratios for this company, there are those that will adjust out the company's convertible debt and arrive at a figure of roughly 3.6, but the convertible debt is debt. So we're going to keep it in there. Our take Premium Brands has been a solid Canadian food services consolidator, but as it has acquired more and more businesses, debt has mounted. And in a higher interest rate environment, capital is now more expensive. The cost of carrying that debt is squeezing profitability and will squeeze profitability. Additionally, the company's ability to continue to acquire, to grow, uh, which has been part of its lifeblood, has been impeded. Now, we have liked the business in the past, but the revenue growth rate continues to be slow and slowing coming in at just 7.3% in the last quarter. And adjusted on an adjusted basis, earnings were lower in the period. Valuations are okay, but with a lack of growth uh, or high-level growth, even mid-level growth, the share rebound year-to-date has the company trading closer to fair value than undervalued at present. When I look at it, and that's yeah, all we looked
2: got. at the company uh, last year. I wrote a report up to Q three yeah. twenty twenty two and. I noted in that report that they were exceeding their targeted debt of, they targeted at the time, and I, I'm guessing this is still the case of three and a half to four times adjusted EBITDA. Yeah, basically. So they're still yeah. well above it. And yeah. so if they're constantly exceeding their target, what good is that target when yeah. you're looking at it as a company? Really it's just they're over leveraged at this time
0: compared yeah, and to what they
2: want. So what we want as well,
0: it's a couple evils that are hitting them there. I mean, they obviously interest rates go higher. It's, you know, the more debt they have, the you know, even if they have this consistent debt level, you know, if you're paying, if you're paying 4%, now you're paying eight. I mean, it hasn't been a jump like that, but if you're, if you have that type of jump, you're, you're, you're squeezing your profitability and then they've always been able to have access to relatively, you know, easy capital via debt. Um, it's not as easy to get, it's more expensive. And, you know, if you want to go out now when they may think their share price is undervalued based on EBITDA, for example, um, you know, it's, it's, you're going to be dilutive, more dilutive at that point. So I, I, you know, it's, it's a catch 22 situation they're in. Everything's great in a low rate environment. And now you're kind of paying the piper for the debt you built up over that time. I think there's some great brands in the company. And, you know, it's not a horrible business by any means, but um, will they be able to grow at a rate that'll get them anything close to a premium valuation on premium brands? I don't think so at this point.
1: Yeah.
3: And I just looked like all of their debts, basically uh, variable. So yeah, I just quickly Yeah. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. It's it's squeezing profitability and will continue to. And, you know, they have high input costs. Now, some of the food prices have come down over the course of this year. That could help improve margins. It's something to definitely look at. But, you know, interest costs have not gone down. So they're going up significantly and debt is high. And, uh, you know, they have convertible debt too. Um, Maybe it doesn't get converted, but, you know, it is debt. That's sitting there, so we're going to factor that into the equation too. And when you do that, there, you know, the, the debt levels are rel- are high, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. All right, I think that's it we have for premium brands today. Uh, let's move on. Uh, I think Brennan is going to revisit graphene manufacturing. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. Um, so, so, so yeah, we've been is getting this, and I told you so uh not oh, completely and I be, told you so but you know <laughs> I, I was getting kidding. ripped apart on the internet and you know it's it's like I don't I mean I'll get into it I'll get into it in my conclusion um so, so yes we've been getting a lot of questions on graphene manufacturing group so I thought that I would update the stock since I last covered it in early 2023 when the stock was trading at about $2.30 and now the stock is down around 40% since I covered it last on the podcast to where it's now trading at about a dollar per share and has a market cap of about $112 And just for reference, they are GMG on the TSX Venture Exchange. So the company is an Australian-based company involved in the production of graphene used primarily in paints, coolants, and lubricants, targeting to improve energy efficiency, and additionally, uh, also in next-generation battery technology. Um, So here, uh, they do have two segments, essentially. So in the first, in the energy savings segment, uh, they're focused on their Thermal XR, which is a graphene-enhanced HVAC-R coating or energy-saving paint, essentially. They also have their G-Lubricant, which is a graphene-enhanced lubricant additive that seeks to reduce fuel consumption and carbon emissions. And also their G-Coolant Uh, which seeks to improve the thermal efficiency of energy, or sorry, engines. Now, in their other segment, they also have their energy storage segment, um, where GMG and the University of Queensland in Australia are working collaboratively with financial support from the Australian government. And now, Uh, As of recently in May, uh, Rio Tinto to progress further research and development and commercialization of graphene aluminum ion batteries, including a coin cell and a pouch cell battery. So some operational updates here. Um, On August 28th, the company provided an update to its commercialization progress of Thermal XR, having commissioned its graphene enhanced coating blending plant with expected capacity to produce up to 500,000 liters of Thermal XR Restore coating per annum. Um, But of course, this is subject to their graphene production. Um, on August 17th, the company announced the closing of a $3.45 million equity offering, issuing a total of about 2 million shares at a price of $1.70. And each share comes with a half warrant with an exercise price of about 220. dollars uh, And I believe that after this offering, the company has about 84 million shares outstanding along with 4.3 million options and about 5 million warrants. Now, On May 29th, they announced a battery update indicating that it became clear to them that uh, pouch cell rather than coin cell batteries were of greatest interest to potential key customers. Uh, So GMG is currently making single-layer pouch cells to proceed to a five-layer pouch cell testing, and then they continue to expect to increase this up to about uh, a 25-layer pouch cell prototype Uh, which they expect to have by the first half of 2024. And on May 18th, they announced a joint development agreement with Rio Tinto on its battery technology. So this is good news, uh, where Rio Tinto will contribute technical and operational performance criteria and six million uh, Australian dollars in exchange for preferential access rights to the battery technology. And it is expected to last uh, about two years with payments spread over the term of the agreement. Uh, And it aims to essentially co-develop this battery uh, together and to kind of make a proof of concept. And they even say that a proof of concept in the news release. Um, So moving forward, the company continues to be focused on four objectives uh, to produce graphene and improve the scale and the production process. Also build revenue from their energy saving products. And then, of course, develop their next generation battery And then last, develop supply chain partners and project execution capability. Um, And I just wanted to quickly show this uh, for visual representation. For those watching on YouTube, Uh, it's just a slide uh, directly from their investor presentation showing their path forward and where they are at uh, their battery technology. So, um, you know, they still have a a lot of uh, room to go, essentially. And looking at the financials, they're pretty dismal here. Um, So for Q3 of 2023, these are all in Australian dollars. Revenue was essentially nil in the quarter. While adjusted EPS was a loss of uh, $5.04 per share compared to a loss of $2.45 per share for Q3 of 2022. And the balance sheet had about $8.8 million with no debt. Uh, But this does not include the most recent equity raise of $3.45 million Canadian. Uh, that they conducted. So to conclude, um, as I conclude here, I wanted to pull up on the screen a few comments which ripped into me uh, for my low quality research telling me to do some real work next time. Well, first off, this is a free podcast that we do weekly and I'm not going to spend hours upon hours researching companies which are speculative, produce essentially no revenue, continue to lose gobs of money and continue to issue shares to keep the lights on. I spend my time researching quality companies for our clients who pay us to find them quality businesses, opposed to what GMG is. It's simply a concept stock. Now, I have no idea whether the business will ever be able to make money. So as it stands, the business is a concept. Now, yes, it is working to sell its thermal XR products at scale. But even when it does start generating meaningful revenue, we still do not know if it will make money or not. And second off, yes, it is quite positive that they're working in unison with the University of Queensland and Rio Tinto to develop their battery. But no, you know, I did not waste my time to call Rio Tinto or the University of Queensland, like one of these comments suggests, for them to explain to me what prototypes they're working to develop. Again, as I said last time, there is speculative potential But the business is still a concept and far from meeting our investment criteria. And to me, it's not a surprise that the stock is down 40% in in seven months. Well, it remains a concept and they continue to uh, dilute. Now, if they can commercialize their battery and begin to ramp up their thermal coatings and lubricants, yes, there is a case to be made that the stock has upside potential. But this is a huge bet on management and an unknown and essentially technology, which I do not claim to understand. Now. Like this last comment from Blue underscore uh, Glider, who says, I will put money into this because of this potential bonanza, but only what I can afford to lose with a shrug. Now, I see no problem taking a speculative bet with a teeny tiny portion of your overall portfolio, which you are willing to lose. But as we say time and time again, if you build a 15 to 25 stock portfolio comprised of stocks like GMG, over the long run, you're bound to do poorly.
1: I'll open up to you Didn't guys. you ask yourself why they were able to fundraise very easily? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Which was another comment, right? Which yeah, was another because comment. there's
1: a lot of investors that understand the technology that are willing to give them whatever money they want. <laughs> no, exactly. And I just, you know, like
3: the first guy The whole, too, the I whole am-
1: idea, able to fundraise very easily from retail investors by selling a story. Like we I, don't invest in stories. We invest in businesses that yeah. are producing products and services and able to sell them to the industry that they're servicing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, go call the university of Queensland and Rio Tinto. I'm sure when you call the person who invented it, they will say all pleasant things yeah. about the product. But when you ask them, well, why is it not generating any revenue or income? Well, they have a good answer for that. Yeah, no, ex- exactly. And it's just, you know, it- On the, you know, they're
3: able to fundraise very easily. Well, it's just like any junior mining stock. All of a sudden they get a new CEO in and they start touting, oh, this CEO has, you know, raised this amount of money in capital markets. Who cares? He's just diluting, you know, like I just, again, you know, it has potential, but it's just so spec. Uh, you know, GMG here. Uh, well, I would say so the potential
1: is unclear. It might be a exactly. nice sounding story, but I would still even just say the potential is very unclear.
3: Exactly.
2: Yeah. Anyway. And I think one of the yeah. biggest uh, bananas opportunities as uh what was said in the comment there is, is the battery tech and they're a small, tiny, tiny little player. There is much, much bigger companies that are trying to produce uh new battery solutions with the electrification. We covered quite a few of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were looking at them in our electrification report. There's much bigger players, there's much bigger funding. So if there is a solution, you're betting on a small player, you're betting on that lottery ticket, yeah. not a big player. Like it it's very unlikely that a tiny player is going to beat out a large company when it comes to research and development, because they're you're putting exponential more money in from those large companies yeah. versus a small player Raising that three million dollars at a time, Brett. And, come on, did you even call the University of Queensland?
0: <laughs> come on, Brett. Just would you get I, on the I,
1: phone I understand understand with the University of Queensland? When <laughs> I saw that
3: comment, it's like, come on, man. Like, how much spec can you or how much due diligence can you put into like a spec business like this? You know, well, just... the
0: the point is, it we don't see a lot of value in doing that, and and we see exactly. value in buying businesses that have existing profitability, revenue, and growth there uh, and building a portfolio of 15 to 25 companies that have that type of profile uh, versus if you added three or four of these concepts or 15 or 20 of these in a portfolio that are just concept. These are concept stocks until they produce any revenue or any profitability. Make no mistake until people have paid for these products or services, they're concept stocks. Um, And we've seen for 25 years, if you build a portfolio that's centered around businesses like this, you will do poorly over the long term. Uh, You know, if you build a portfolio that has companies with good valuations, good growth ahead of them and sound fundamentals, then you have a fading chance to beat the market over the long term and significantly beat the market. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what we try to look at and teach to our clients. Uh, show to our clients when we issue them research or just talk about on this podcast on a weekly basis and that's the concept we're trying to get across you can fall in love with the technology Um, it's the quickest way to be part you know to be taken from your money essentially Mm -hmm. and that's what we see on a weekly basis and it really makes me kind of sad to see people you know get behind and what they think they know about a technology in a small company and marry themselves to that stock, uh, it's not something that is uh, good fundamental investing over the long term. Uh, you know, In this case, uh, maybe this company has the secret sauce within its technology to produce a, a winner over the long term. Uh, we're saying that we cannot analyze that. We can analyze the fundamentals of the business. What we did at the start of the year, we looked at a ton of electrification type businesses. We recommended a company called Hammond Power. It was trading at $19.90 at the start of this year. It traded at eight times earnings, had tremendous growth. Today it trades at $54. Well, that was a company with growth, revenues, earnings, net cash position, benefiting from the electrification boom like you're trying to do with this graphene company. But it had those, all of those things that check off our boxes. And you can see the stocks up 150, 170% uh, over the course of this year, 170% in that range. Uh, that's what we look at. Those are the type of businesses that we like our clients to invest in because you're investing. There's always speculation investing, but that's pure speculation with a concept stock. This has some fundamentals behind it. And that's why we look at those type of businesses. Position your portfolio with 15 or 25 companies that have the profile of Hammond Power, not a concept stock. And this is not banging on graphene manufacturing. It's just that type of business versus the fundamental value-based business that you can see in, say, Hammond Power. And those are the type of returns that everybody's looking for, like 170% in a seven-month period. Ah, uh, that's what you're looking for when you're trying to tremendously beat the market over the long term. Look at those type of businesses. Structure your portfolio with 15 to 25 that have that profile, not a concept stock. So that's my soapbox. I think Brandon. Thanks had for backing me up, bae. Yeah. We'll We've see what people have to back, comment. Brennan. Oh, I'm sure they'll say you don't know anything about the technology. <laughs> it, it, we're really not even talking laugh, about that. We're yeah. talking about. The the philosophy behind our investing, the concept of the way we invest in companies and why we do it that way and how we justify, you know, our purchases of individual companies and our recommendations. All right, let's move on. The show's going long. NVIDIA Corp. uh, Brett's got that one.
2: Yeah, Another one, which we'll, I'll probably be told I don't understand the technology. So <laughs> here we go. Uh, NVIDIA, symbol MVDA on the NASDAQ. It really needs no introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyways, just in case you're not familiar. NVIDIA is a pioneer of GPU accelerated computing, specializing in products and platforms for large growing markets of gaming, professional visualization, data center and automotive. The stock is up over 220% year to date, currently trading at roughly $460, and a market cap of about $1.14 trillion, making it the fifth largest public traded company by size at this time. The company releases Q2 2024 results mid-last week, which have beat effectively all expectations of the company's already high revenue growth. The company had record had a record. Quarterly revenue growth of $13.5 billion. between the previous guidance, the guidance that is, of $11 of up 88% quarter over quarter and 101% year over year. Clearly, that's just a massive improvement for a company this size. The growth was of a result of both pricing increases as well as units sold notably of its HGX system, which is the platform built for AI use. Notably, we saw as well higher gross margin of 70.1% compared to 64.6% in the last quarter and 43.5% in Q2 of last year. Gap EPS was up to 248, up from 26% last year's while non-gap EPS was 270 versus 51% in the prior year. Again, massive increase fundamentally for the financials. The largest non-gap adjustment as well was share compensation like many other companies. Materially, all of the increase in revenue and ultimately all of the income increase was from data center due to the AI gold rush. Revenue from data centers increased to 10.3 billion, up 141% from the last year's quarter from the last quarter, and from last year it increased 171%. Whereas gaming, the second biggest, big biggest segment, rose only 22% year over year to 2.5 billion just to give an idea of the revenue split previously for fiscal 2023, so last year effectively, this calendar 2022, 56.6% was from data center, 34.2% from gaming with the remainder from visualization and automotive. Now the last quarter data center revenue was 76.8% of revenue with gaming only being 18.5%. I wanna make that clear, effectively all the growth really has been from data center, which is largely AI-driven. The headlines of NVIDIA really being an AI-driven company is completely true. It is tangible, and it is trackable to see that it is entwined with AI at this time. Further, the company once again released strong guidance for Q3. Revenue is expected to be $16 plus or minus 2%. This is the same percentage range they gave last quarter, which ended up being being significantly surpassed, so just a grain of salt even though it was to the upside. Last quarter, management guidance really can materially differ from what they expect even in a couple months. Non-GAAP gross margin expected to be 72.5%. Plus or minus 50 basis points, with non-GAAP operating expenses being about two billion, and other income expected to be 100 million, resulting in a midpoint non-GAAP net income under management guidance of about 8.3 billion, which would be up 23% quarter over quarter, if guidance is correct. That is a big if, of course. As we saw last quarter, it could be substantially higher, and of course, on the other side, it could be substantially lower. At this time, I think they need to increase their 2% range, to say the least. So, moving on to valuation, the company is trading at a trade trailing non-GAAP P of 88 times with a trailing price to sale of 35 times. Quite expensive valuation looking back. But of course, the company has shifted nearly all of its growth to data center AI from a mix primarily of consumer graphic and data center. However, going forward, using just analyst expectations, it is trading at roughly 48 times non-GAAP earnings and 21 times sale. If these forward valuations come true, the company still isn't exactly cheap but it is becoming more reasonable, not cheap, reasonable. I want to make that very clear. (laughs) However, I do really want to go through a few risks because the valuation is based on large growth expectations. So really, what could derail this NVIDIA AI story? First off, the company has a near monopoly on data center GPUs at this time, especially for large language models or LLM AI tasks like ChatGPT. However, AMD, the main competitor to NVIDIA, is expecting to release its ML3 or MI300 chip later this year. I would not expect to mean like a big market shift uh, switch to AMD like we saw AMD and uh, Intel a few years ago with uh, compute chips or CPUs. But it would not be surprising to see NVIDIA's pricing power be lowered because of this, because you have to offset, hey, we can buy two NVIDIA chip or two AMD chips offset one uh, NVIDIA chip. Should we make that change? Is it worthwhile for a company who's buying potentially thousands of these units to make that change? And as well, you have to look at power and price to performance because they are using a ton of power when you're powering thousands of these chips. That is always a concern for these large data centers. So while as well, NVIDIA did uh, say that, Both pricing and unit growth were part of their uh, growth recently. They did not break out how much was pricing growth, but we can see how much their margins increased for gross margins. We saw it go from about 50% historically to now this 70%. If that does come back down just due to competition, obviously, that's a mass risk. The second risk is demand does not only continue to stay high, but it needs to also stay high We've seen previously NVIDIA saw growth from Ethereum mining in 2017 and then needed to revise its earnings significantly lower once that fell apart. While AI is by no means cryptocurrency, it clearly has more legs to it and is supported by larger players and a more tangible market. If the end market changes its needs, NVIDIA's growth would severely suffer. In this case, something similar could occur if AI's end product pretty much just stops seeing growth. We saw a big massive growth with chat gpt it just set a new wave of growth expectations new wave of products over the last year but if it's another five ten years before we see that another really step up in products you might not see that recurring investment in data center players and they need to see that return on investment to keep on making these large large billion dollar investments um, over and over again which is where nvidia comes in Semiconductor investment is really just cyclical historically, and I cannot see with the advent of AI really changing that cycle. And the current heightened demand could even cause a larger difference between the peak and trough, as we are seeing this significant, really, everyone needs to get into AI at this time. Third, it is a geopolitical risk, specifically within China. In the last quarter, NVIDIA had roughly 20% of its revenue from China, which it already has sanctions uh set against it for nvidia chips so it needs to actually sell a cut down version of its ai chips at this time and obviously if change, sanctions were to increase significantly if it was just hey no no more uh significant uh or i should say powerful ai chips because right now it's just really a power-based thing uh sold to china that would obviously cause the to drop overnight and it's out of uh, nvidia's control is really just geopolitical tensions and of course it stayed in many many years and effectively every semiconductor there is the reliant on tsmc at this time or taiwan in general for their most advanced nodes which are manufactured there which of course china has been threatening to evade since the end of the civil war in 1949 so obviously that's big historic risk whether it happens or not i have no idea but if it were to happen to be significant downside so it is worth noting concluding NVIDIA has strong operational growth, there's no way to say that it doesn't, but the current tailwinds of AI over the past couple quarters are already really implied in the price. The AI tailwinds need to stay strong, while they need to also overcome the potential headwinds of impending AMD competition, as well as demand risk. If It is just up, everyone gets in the door, but once that goes away, is there legs behind that as well for that recurrent investment? I would really argue at this time, NVIDIA is starting to become a crowded trade with the current valuations, needing to continue at high growth, but potentially having these material risks to demand, creating potentially significant downside if we do not see this recurring investment. At the core, you are investing not just in NVIDIA as a company at this time, but really in the success and growth of AI. At the current prices, I wouldn't be invested, but at lower prices, it is definitely appealing as a company. On that note, I mean, it's like you said, like it's appealing as a company,
3: you know, a Peter Lynch quote, wonderful companies become risky investments when people overpay for them, you know. So it's just I guess that's, you know, essentially what we're seeing mm-hmm. here is price to perfection. Um, and, you know, as all of a sudden you're demanding, you know, 50
1: times forward uh, earnings, you know, it, it, it's up there. He used our essential infrastructure for AI development as well as cloud and a lot of other things as well. Um, You know, we're already halfway through 2023, so you look 2024, analysts are estimating 15 times earnings non-gap, or sorry, $15 in earnings non-gap, which puts the valuation about 31 times. I don't think that that's that expensive. Um, Of course, they have to hit that target. And then you also have to consider like, well, what is the differential between gap and non-gap in there too? But I mean, I'm not seeing something that's ridiculously overpriced here. I think the main risk is just, as Brett said, you know, it's not so much what is the, we know that AI is the future, um, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be consistent growth year over year over year over year in the demand for GPUs, right? Like we've seen a major step up. Um, recently with, with Chat GPT and GPT-3. And a lot of times you'll see that major step up and then things kind of flatline a little bit or they increase at a much more moderate pace for five or six years before you see like another step up. And we have no, I mean, ultimately NVIDIA is a hardware company Primarily, not a software company, although they are getting more into software in the future, but they're primarily a hardware company, so it's, it's not a recurring revenue business. We have seen volatility and cyclicality in the company's financial performance in the past, so those are things to consider.
0: That would be my take on the valuation. Uh, in terms of uh, just hardware versus software, it's typically harder to maintain a margin over the long term in hardware, and there's less recurring nature, obviously, to it. It's often not re- non-recurring. So does it deserve a high premium valuation that like a software giant, say, like Microsoft or an Adobe or, or these companies that have a SaaS-based business that is very recurring... Higher margin, less volatility. So it's trading right now at valuations that kind of rival those names. Um, does it deserve to ha- be at those multiples? Maybe in the near term, where you see you know a ton of activity around AI, and perhaps that continues. But they don't have the they don't have the recurring nature, and they don't have the margin profile that's sustainable. To me, most hardware companies don't have that, and so does it. You know you can see this extreme volatility in the share price over the last like four or five years. So uh, that would indicate that it probably continues that way because you have cycles in companies like this. And uh, it's hard to pay a massive premium for a business that is, you know, that has that cycle to it for me.
2: And just on a hardware pricing, you can see just with the gross margin, like they are definitely trading at a we're selling at a quite high margin right now due to the lack of competition. That's why, I, even though I don't think AMD is going to take a large share of the market because they haven't historically for traditional compute tasks, if they do even start to just get that 10, 20% margin or a market share like they have before, that 70%, if it goes back down to 50, there goes your growth for a couple quarters, even at these high rates.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Something definitely to watch. All right, that's going to conclude our show for this week. Keep your questions coming in for our Your Stock, Our Take. We'll endeavor to answer those each week. Uh, If you're watching this on YouTube, smash that subscribe button, and we'll continue to put out this content. If you're listening to this on iTunes, uh, rate and review us on there. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, and uh, only uh, five stars is what we look for on there. Thank you very much. Again, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. As always, wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.
2: Thank you.